Welcome, Wheatland family and friends. Thanks so much for joining us. You're listening to Cross Reference, a podcast of Wheatland Presbyterian Church. I am Luke LaDuc, senior pastor here at Wheatland, and I am joined weekly by our co-host, Dr. Dan Spanger, professor of history and chair of the Arts and Sciences Department at Lancaster Bible College. As a professor of history, Dan is a bright mind and engaging lecturer, and as an elder here to our Wheatland family, Dan has a warm heart for the gospel of Jesus and our life together as the body of Christ. And I am thrilled to dig more deeply into the scriptures with him each week as we tackle questions, explore connections, and generally unpack the sermon from the previous Sunday. Along the way, we'll take a few side streets, a winding road or two, but we'll never be quite so lost that you won't enjoy the scenery. Thanks for coming along. Welcome, Wheatland. This is Cross Reference with Dr. Dan Spanger and Pastor Luke LeDuc. And this Sunday, Pastor Luke, we're looking at your sermon on Genesis chapter six and um, the Nephilim. Yeah, really great people. And you've, you've, uh, I don't know if you're sure you've opened can of worms or put worms mm. back in a can. I'm not yeah. sure what happened here, but um, yeah, I had breakfast with some guys this morning who were giving me grief <laughs> that I that I didn't portray them as the rock monsters from the. Uh, from the recent movie of, of, uh, who was it? Uh, Russell Crowe and, uh, Oh my. I, yeah. I where, where the Nephilim. Yeah. The, oh, is Noah's, that the Noah flood? But yeah, yeah, yeah. Flood? I oh, didn't, oh, oh. I didn't actually see it. Did you see that? Well, movie? no, but now that okay. I realize it's I know. and inspired, I think <laughs> they were very monster. upset that I didn't just come out with my rock monster theology here. Yeah. But, uh, Anyway, now I feel like I have to go back and watch the yeah, movie. A point of, and, a point and of cultural contact missed there, Pastor. I, I blew it. I know. Yeah. I know. Well, that I, if I let's let's start there because I you said something in the sermon which I had never thought of before, but knowing a little about ancient history resonated really true. Was mm. this idea of what you call the golden age or the Adamic age coming to an end, and this whole period between the fall and the flood, which you know we don't know how long it was, but. Uh, yeah. Obviously, you know, if you look at Methuselah, it's taken thousands mm-hmm. of years potentially. Yeah, um, or yeah, a thousand exactly. years or more. Um, more. Yeah, yeah. That that this was the time, like from here going back to Rome, possibly. That's the that's the same time frame mm. when all the great oh, heroes of the world, yeah, yeah and you know, built things and cities and invented mm-hmm, art. And, mm-hmm. and you said, and I, and I was thinking for some reason, Marvel, Marvel came to mind <laughs> as heroes and the Nephilim, right? Spider-Man, yeah, right. Iron Man, that, that, that for them was this time of, yeah, right. Great heroism. And that's probably how the Egyptians thought about it, probably about his Israelites had learned things. But then according to you, God has, has redefined that entire period, not as a time of heroes and great accomplishment, but yeah. a really deep sin. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's a tremendous turnaround. It is. It's I, to me, when I began to um, read, and again, I was not reading the, all of these ancient Near Eastern accounts of the True. period before the flood, flood, as much as I was reading bits and pieces from them, little articles about them, but uh, they all with uh, sort of one voice had really elevated uh, that time mm. to be, as I pointed out uh, on the inside cover, I had that quotation 
from Sandra Richter, where she called them, uh, let me see, I think I have it in there. Um, yeah, it wasn't a time of mighty men and fair women and a, a golden age of Camelot is what is right. what she called it. But from everyone else's perspective uh, in that, you know, ancient Near Eastern history, at the time that Israel is coming out of Egypt and, and moving forward, it's exactly what it was. And then we get to this account, which in a lot of ways mirrors the Epic of Gilgamesh right, or, right. or some of these other flood stories. But it's like what we had earlier in the sermon series, where it turns everything right. completely on its head to say, no way, this was actually debauchery come to its fullest expression, and humanity had completely corrupted what God gave uh, them to do, in spite of all of the beautiful things that had come out of right. civilization, music and art and, and, and progress with instruments and all of that sort of forger of, of weapons of war and all of that stuff. Yeah, it's, it's almost like a Conan Barbarian, this, this massive strength and power that did all these amazing things. And you yeah. now, if you take this, if you take the narrative seriously in Genesis, you have to now invert all of that and say, that was powerful, but it was not, because I mean, that's going to be contrasted here with Noah, yeah. Yeah. a man of humble obedience, yeah. not the kind of hero that civilizations are typically built on. <laughs> you yeah. need warriors and champions. You want some Marvel, yeah. Marvel heroes back in time that can build for and, a civilization that's not how god's categorizing us. yeah and i think maybe maybe you were pointing this out earlier but all of the sudden you have this contrast between uh the kingdoms that were built by human hmm. giftedness and brilliance and brute strength i mean you talk about forging a civilization out of bare rock i mean that's what these guys were doing and now all of the sudden God is coming in and saying, that is not the kingdom that I'm building here on earth. Mm. It is a very different kingdom. And we have mm. to start over in a sense. Yeah. And, that, yeah, and, that, and again, this whole, this whole thing, just turning your mind around to reevaluate. And I think as I was, you're saying that I was thinking, how much have we done that? Like we measure greatness and all sorts of, I think it has a mm. lot to do with Christ preaching that, you know, those that are first or last is really a mm -hmm. difficult thing to hear, even as Christians, because right. there's heroes that have done great things, but you actually have to use an entirely different lens to evaluate greatness because Noah will now become the hero who doesn't right. accomplish much of anything, except he right. just does what he's told and humble, humbly right. follows God's commands. Not, it's not, doesn't seem heroic by earthly standards. Right. And, and in a sense though, even in, I don't know, I was thinking about this before the sermon, but even in the Christian world, we have sort of turned Noah into something that he actually wasn't. Like we, right. we decorate nursery. We, you know, I, I don't know. We, we name kids after it, which is a great name, Noah. I don't know of anybody named Gilgamesh, um, you know, the, <laughs> the, the other. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, um, but you're right. He was this humble guy who, who endures so much. Um, and, and himself does experience all of the storm of, right. of that upheaval in, but from the inside of a of, of God's salvation, but um, it forces us to and and I think if we were to go back and say what is God doing? Why are these stories coming to Israel at this time? It's because they are being prepared to be a unique kingdom of priests that will 
always be tempted to evaluate their own greatness and success by mm. the values of the world, but in the right. end, they must not, or right. else they will lose uh, the faithfulness that they're being called to as God's people. That is really, that's, that, that brings more parallels then between the Nephilim and Egypt. You could very well imagine, as you're saying that, how they're evaluating the weakness of their own national identity compared to the glory. I mean, I, I think it is really hard for us to appreciate the power Egypt had in its day, the mm. scale, the, the might was just unimaginable. We, we live in a, a modern society, but it's really hard to see those construction buildings, governments, armies, and not be just awed. Oh, And then imagine oh that's what success looks like. That's what heroism looks like, mm -hmm. not this ragtag group wandering through the desert. Yeah, it's, it is stark, the contrast, the, the, the whole thing. I mean, I mean, for me, that's what Genesis 1 through 11 has been doing in ways that I've never experienced it just from mm -hmm. preaching through it, because mm -hmm. I've never preached through it as a whole. Well, I've grabbed bits and pieces here right. and there and preached, but I've never preached through Genesis 1 through 11 as a whole. And I think in a new way, that order and disorder stuff has mm -hmm. jumped out at me in mm -hmm. new ways. And then this um, human kingdom versus heavenly kingdom mm -hmm. versus God's kingdom kind of idea. These things just keep getting reinforced over and over to a people who have seen all of the glory mm -hmm. of the most advanced and glorious human kingdom mm -hmm. in ancient Egypt. And that's what they were experiencing. So there, there, I would imagine, this is a dumb question, there are parallels, right? I mean, there are parallels to what the church is going to see in Rome, yeah. parallels to what the church mm. is going to see in Europe, parallels to what we're seeing now. Yeah. Do we fall into the same, the same possible trap um, that Israel would fall into, that we really look back to the Nephilim, we really look back to Egypt and go, but that, mm. that's what we really want. This whole church business where it's right. we're persecuted and no one understands what we're doing and yeah. have no real influence and... You know, is there, is there parallels we need to draw here uh, to being Lamech too, to yeah. being Noah? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it's one of the reasons why I wanted to tackle this section, yeah. but I had no idea how relevant. <laughs> I right. it wasn't that I th I had all of this in my head beforehand, <laughs> and this is I wish I could say I was that brilliant, but it wasn't. It's, it's not just, your brilliance; it's the Bible's Luke. That's yeah, right. yeah, exactly. It's just the to see that unfold for us in our own moment. Yeah. To say, you know, as as sort of gospel faithfulness and kingdom faithfulness is going to make us more and more marginalized i think as a community of 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 the church and less and less um uh well just open to more and more charges of of backwardness or, or whatever yeah. it might yeah. be um i can't think of a more uh helpful sort of um tune-up for our hearts yeah. and our minds than to see that God's kingdom on the earth, no matter what you might have experienced uh, 75 or 100 years ago, even in our own country, right. no matter what you've experienced, the kingdom is always been a place of conflict with mm. the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. That conflict has always been there, right. no matter what certain historical moments have experienced in the way of peace and tranquility. Right. Well, this goes back to your shaft quote, which just keeps ringing yeah, in my ears and my mind all the time that you're, yeah. you're really if we're taking Genesis seriously, we have to see 
that the true narrative of human history is the kingdom that God is unfolding, which always looks like a minor subplot, backstory, yeah. distraction yeah. from the real story of humanity, which is right. Babylon and Rome. Yeah. And, yeah. But it's not. It, and that I think I think for Israel and I think for us, there's a there's a I don't know how other than by the spirit, you get to the point where you can say, oh, the Nephilim. Oh, that wasn't that was an age of just sin and total corruption. It was really what God was doing. This one little person and through this weirdo mm. on the hillside building an ark for the next 80 years. Yeah, that's where the real story of history is. And that right. that's just not apparent. It's just not. It's, evident. It is only the gift of the spirit, the work of God's yeah. spirit in his people that brings us to that point. And I'm I'm um, I'm actually not here this Sunday. I'm preaching uh, in Texas. Uh, I'm not going to use that illustration that I used here a number of weeks ago about Texans, but uh, <laughs> I'm going to. I'm going to. You want about that Pennsylvania one. now? Yeah. Something Amish but, related. Yeah, that's right. But no, I'm. I'm preaching. You have an Amish bathroom? Is that, yeah, is that what's going on? <laughs> exactly. We have now. Now our new bathroom that I talked about is all decorated in Amish. No, it's not. No, uh, yeah. like. That's a good. Good question. Candle? No, I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, Black and white. I don't... Um, but uh, I'm preaching on Psalm two. Hmm. And, and to me, Psalm 2 is this interesting psalm where it opens. So you had Psalm 1, where uh, blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, hmm. but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And then Psalm 2 says, why do the nations rage and why do the king, the people or the kingdoms imagine a vain thing. Mm. So it, in, it, mm. Psalm 2 creates, I think, this reality of what the world actually is. And, and God's response mm. to that is that he doesn't even get up. It says he, he remains seated and he laughs, laughs and he holds. Yeah. And yeah. so uh, I, I won't preach that sermon here, but, but the point is that the church has the opportunity to either live in absolute anxiety or to find refuge in the king whom God has appointed mm -hmm. in, in that Psalm 2. I've set my king on Zion, mm -hmm. and uh, blessed are those who take refuge in him. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, yes, that's our work. When we see the nations raging and the kingdoms imagining all these empty things, mm -hmm. our work is to find our refuge in the king. And that's, I think that's what we're presented with now. And, and the difficulty of our moment mm. is, is just that. How, does, how do we as a church not mirror the anxiety and the raging and the clamor mm. of the nations in a different direction, perhaps, but how do we not mirror that? And how do we take refuge in this kingdom that we're seeing be established that is just upside down as some right. people have talked about it right and in this king who is so humble and so sacrificial um yeah that's right. huge work for us so that, so let, go back to your discussion of the nephilim and who they are as princes which i mm -hmm. i was telling you beforehand that my at least one of my eyebrows was slightly askew while you were saying that until you mentioned the name meredith klein that i was immediately yeah. ease because right. I trust Meredith Klein, but I, I trust you too. I just, I just no, know, I know. interesting yeah. approach. But, but to say that, I, I wonder if, if what we're, what we're going to be taught here to see is that the people of the world, almost the whole world, had put their trust and hope in these kings and these princes, mm -hmm. and therefore they're not held guiltless yeah. for doing that. Right. 
but that Noah is being told to have his affections for another king. So do you see, we talked about this when you, when you talk about the Exodus, we say you've got King Pharaoh against King God mm-hmm. and there's a battle. Mm-hmm. Do we see a similar royal yeah. battle breaking out here between the Nephilim princes and Yahweh? And therefore God does not hold those guiltless that have signed their lot with yeah. princes. Yeah. No, it's it's fascinating. And I think what you've done there is sort of a helpful extension of, of what I was getting at. I think that puts it very, very clearly and starkly. Um, one of the things that I didn't bring out is um, that at the end of verse, let me look at it here. At the end of verse four, the Nephilim are called the men of renown. Mm. In the Hebrew, that literally is, it's articular. It's the men of the name, Mm. Um, which is so interesting Mm. because I think when you add, when you take this, this is the first time this comes up. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of the name, men who had met, had a name for themselves and sought to make a name for themselves. It sort of carries over perfectly into Babel where the people sought to make a name for themselves. And so it, it is, I think, in, in the sense, these people who, instead of reverencing the name of God, instead of living under the name of God, are seeking that independence and autonomy uh, to make a name for themselves. And there's something about that that's really appealing to the people who cast their lots mm. with them. And, and I think what you're saying is absolutely true, is that to give your allegiance to these men who are making a name for themselves versus allegiance to the name, Yah, which yeah. of course mm-hmm. we'll see later, God reveals himself to, to Moses in Exodus as uh, I am that I am. He reveals his, his divine name to him. Yeah, it, you bear the weight of that responsibility. That if 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 you cast your lot, if if you give your allegiance to the men of who decide to make a name for themselves, rather than to the name that God has uh, established as the King of the uh, Himself as King, um, there's this there's a sense in which it's that that's what's at the core of it that has to bear the judgment. It's not even, it is the wickedness that's done. I'm, I'm, I'm talking in new, new places here now. So bear with me, but it's not just that these men did wicked things, which they did and they were judged for, but it's at the heart of it is men who sought their own name and established their own name rather than under the authority of God who had created heaven and earth and, and, and under whose name all of the earth was to be cultivated and 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 conquered in a sense right and that confirms something that i've been i've been sort of wrestling with and that is the i think we as evangelicals because of our heritage we come to scripture for moral reasons we see moral right and moral wrong so we want to reduce everything to some sort of moral lying is bad murder that's true but it seems like the scripture's primary mode is political Hmm. Like it's loyal, and I asked Dan Carvin, Old Testament scholar here, when the Old Testament talked about righteousness, what would be a good synonym? And he said, loyalty is probably the best synonym. We would moralize the term as yeah, righteousness, yeah. not doing bad stuff. Right, Mor- moralness or something. Moralness, yeah, right. But, yeah, but actually, yeah. he said, it's closer to what your loyalty. And so I think to connect what you're saying there, which I think resonates, is the idea that wickedness morally is the result of being politically 
disloyal mm. to Yahweh and politically loyal to those who would try to take his authority. Right. And there's almost that political loyalty, because this goes to covenantal things, I think, too. Covenant yes. loyalty mm-hmm. is the primary, you know, sort of re- response right. to have to God. So right. I think I think the way you're ex- describing or explaining it really opens up that political contours of this because mm-hmm. these princes and kings have demanded loyalty and people have granted it mm-hmm. and they would prefer to be loyal to them because they get their bread from them and their whatever, right whatever. and and we can't be so naive to think that these men of renown are not doing amazing things for right. their right. society and their civilization right. and their culture exactly. they they are defending from enemies i i one of the things that i thought of is um, the wild beasts of that time were mm. an enemy in the way. And I, I, I probably read this somewhere because I'm not that brilliant to come up with this stuff on my own, but th- these guys were um, also in charge of creating safety for civilization. Right. And that's how they earned this name um, as the Nephilim, the mighty warriors. And, but right. so you, it, it's not as if the people were just doofuses who, <laughs> who who were giving their allegiance to these men they right. had created life but in their own way they'd created life and that i mean i, I think that's right that's a foreshadow of babel because i mean if anything a city represented the time was safety yes. health medicine mm-hmm. food yeah. i mean cities were considered the place of civil outside the city was always very volatile very yes. you know up in the air survival mm-hmm. was difficult and I think, too, if, if again, to take it to Egypt, I mean, for heaven's sake, you're much safer in Egypt than you are in the wilderness. Exactly. And you can't complain that somehow Egypt is all evil. They've got water. Right. They've got defense. They've, yeah. they've got food. Labor is difficult, for sure. But I think you're right. I think we can easily say, try to put everything and lop it into a moral category and go, mm-hmm. well, those Nephilim were just killing everyone that came near right. them. Right. And that's why they were bad. No, they were doing really good things, but yeah. not in the name. Right. They were right. Doing in their name. And Right, man, Luke, and that—that that, I'll tell you—you you start to think about how we've trusted our culture, yeah, and society to give us the protection thing. Like we've labeled that good, and are we actually trading our loyalty at points hmm. rather hmm. than trusting in Yahweh? I, I don't know if we can draw right. a direct a parallel there to things and activities. Right? Well, I, I think it's just always really what it forces us to be and to do as a community who are seeking to live in loyalty to King Jesus is it is it will not allow us to be simplistic about stuff. Right, right. It, it will not allow us just to throw in our lot with group X or group Y, right. because it's always, it, it, it's always about loyalty to King Jesus. And that's going to look it, that, that that's hard work. Yeah. That's that's nuanced work. That's that's the work of faithfulness. And and um, yeah, I think there's so many issues that we could go to right away that say, <laughs> right, right. oh, wow. You know, how, do, how what does faithfulness look like here? And what does faithfulness look like in, in our political climate right now? What is faithfulness to Yahweh, loyalty to Yahweh look like in our cultural climate, uh, uh, cultural climate with sexuality and 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 pol- politics and all, all the things that are right on the surface for us. It, the conversation has to start with ultimate loyalties and allegiances and right. then move on from there. Right. And right. to understand that almost every movement outside of, even though there are like brilliant things happening, every movement outside of the kingdom is making a name for itself at one right. level. 
That is, I, I just, I can see that being the, the constant struggle and temptation of Israel and the church. Like if anything ties us together with, with Israel, it seems to be that because that mm. temptation is exactly the same to me. Yeah. Whether you give into foreign nations and trying to get their defense and mm -hmm. turning back to Baal, like I'll be a Christian, I'm happy to go to temple, but after that, I'm just going to go over to Baal just because he also takes care of some things and right. he can defend us. And quite frankly, we'll get some more rain out of him. Right. So it always feels like syncretism is a way of covering the gaps that God leaves open. Mm. Yeah, Christianity is fine. God's yeah. always good. But there's a few other things we can add. But, but God never tolerates those things as, oh, I can see what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it makes right. sense to me. You need a little rain and I wasn't going to deliver. You know, right. that, that doesn't seem to, to matter to God. It's <laughs> either you're going to be loyal to me or you're not yeah. at that level. Which I like. Yeah. It makes things less simple. It's you actually have to realize this is something that yeah. We do and you repentance. I think you realize like how much you need brothers and sisters who are committed to that as well along with you because you're right. not going to be able to see it all the time because it is such hard work and and right. we're, you're right. going to bring right. your own blind spots to to that and you need brothers and sisters faithfully pointing these things out all under this one sort of overwhelming loyalty to Jesus that uh, that actually is a thing that unites us. Right. And the metaphor you're using, again, the theological framework, which I think, again, holds through, which I'm hoping that everyone's hearing, because I think sometimes the way our Bibles break them up into like headings, like this is the creation story, that's done. Yeah, yeah. That the, the continuity of Genesis 1-1 through that this as you said before, disorder, you said this a long time ago, which always has stuck with me, is that ever since the fall, God moved things from disorder to order. And ever since the fall, it's all been creeping back, mm -hmm. which doesn't take us long to find that that's in fact accurate. Right, right. right. I but probably I got that language from you, Dan, at one yeah. point during your, your word of God. Oh. I think that, <laughs> that class uh, was really had some of that rich stuff going on. It was like, oh, yeah, that's a great way to say it. Mm -hmm. um, anyway. But yeah, I think if we miss that, if we miss, we, we talk a lot about the cultural mandate, like Reformed theology has talked right, a lot right. about the cultural mandate, but we've, sometimes we've stopped short and not gotten back to what's behind the cultural mandate is this battle between order right. and disorder right. and, and uh, allegiance and loyalty to Yahweh and and allegiance and loyalty to ourselves that yeah that and the autonomy and mm -hmm. independence uh, thing is is such a been such a helpful paradigm for me in all of these because it can look right and I think you've said this it looks like it's working it looks mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. by all outward appearances autonomy makes sense that yeah they've got it together. And, and I just keep thinking of, there's a one in, I think, Mark 8, it's one of my favorite chapters, it's become that, when Jesus gets the blind person and he heals him and he says, what do you see? He says, it looks like people, oh, looks like yeah. people, like trees. You know? Man is like, trees, yeah. Yeah, I can't, I, I feel like I know what I'm looking at, but I don't know. And I, <laughs> I, I keep coming back to that and thinking, how much of what I look, am I looking at with my eyes is not what I think it is, because right. my... And my sin makes it makes these look like actually you know trees walking around. Am I, do I have it wrong? And we have to turn back to Jesus and say, no, yeah. I'll give you sight. You don't trust your eyes. Trust that right. I will give you sight. Mm. Something along those lines. And yeah. I think this, this your, your, your whole series is, is helping me with that. I appreciate yeah. it.
two things I wanted to get to, but one is just your, your discussion of the different flood stories I thought was also helpful. Yeah. And that this becomes another clear differentiation because they've yeah. known these stories. Yeah. That there's something so radically different about this one. And the one you did mention is how the gods approach. Yeah. The and, what, and would the other one also be Noah and, and his, I know you're not there yet, but yeah. What Noah, how Noah responds as opposed to say Gilgamesh does or right. another Babylonian hero. Right. Yeah. Like Gilgamesh is, 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 um, you know, using his brute strength and his might to uh, sort of be this one who makes it through this flood time, you know, uh, I, what who I was really helped by was um, Meredith Klein when he talked about, he pointed out in an article, uh, I actually put the article in my sermon notes, uh, if anybody wanted to go online yeah. and read it in my manuscript, it's footnoted so that they could see it. What's the name of the article? And, uh, it's called Divine Kingship and Genesis 6, 1 through 4. Oh, nice. So it, it's widely available on MeredithKlein.com. Um, okay. So you, you could just check that out. It's a PDF. But he talks about the way in which all these other flood stories get uh, either, either they do not give a reason at all for the flood. And, and to me, that means mm. that the gods are just capricious. I, mm. Why would you even try to say why a god does something you don't mm -hmm. have access to why gods why the gods do some of their things or the other one that i mentioned in the sermon of course was um from the uh old babylonian flood narrative called the atrahasis epic and uh it's because the gods or the gods were annoyed at humanity right. <laughs> uh, which i I didn't read the quote uh, in the sermon, but if you've made it this far in the podcast, I'll read you the quote from that Atrahasis epic, um, old Babylonian flood narrative. It, it says this, the land became wide, the people became numerous, the land bellowed like wild oxen, the god was disturbed by their uproar. Enlil heard their clamor and said to the great gods, Oppressive has become the clamor of mankind. By their uproar, they prevent sleep. <laughs> and so the, the, the response to the, to the noise was, yeah, wipe them out. And then, of course, they realize, oh, shoot, who's going to produce food gonna feed for us? us? <laughs> yeah. And so uh, cut, my, cut my nose off despite my face. And, and there we are. So, yeah, it's just this. And, and what Genesis 1 through 6 does is it takes all of those that would have been mm. well known uh, to Israel in a post-flood world. Like, I mean, that's the uh, Keith will probably get into this this Sunday, but every civilization had a flood narrative. That's right. I think fairly uh, a fairly strong uh, univocal uh, statement right. about something cataclysmic happened that changed the course of human history at that right. time. Um, but uh, yeah, Genesis does this radical thing with it that says, whoa, 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 you cannot, uh, you cannot think of the gods this way mm. or uh, as capricious, or you can't think of them as annoyed at humanity. But the way, Mo the, way uh, the record here, Moses author puts it, is God is grieved to his heart. And that, mm. I mm. think, is just mm. this beautiful thing to to israel as they're being mm. led out by yahweh this is the kind of god that you have <laughs> he mm. is not capricious he is not annoyed he is uh, wholly invested 
in his people flourishing in his world under his kingship. And yeah, that's a beautiful thing about the grace that comes in here. Yeah, and, and to say grief, I, th I think you were getting at this in the sermon, that grief is this personal connection and relation, which doesn't seem to appear in the Atrahasset, that it's mm -mm. gods are distant or they're not getting something they want. Right. But this actually comes down to a grief for humanity, for the loss of goodness in the world, which is, at one sense, it's, it's about God himself, but it's also God himself loving and deeply involved in, not distracted by or annoyed by, which... Again, it's really, it would be hard to, to see Yahweh that way when you've been taught all the while that gods are always yeah. in their own little economy, doing their own little thing, and they just need people or get annoyed at them. That's just a different yeah. way to look at it. Dan, that's a profound thing to say, I think, that is worth reflecting on for just a second, is how hard it would have been for Israel to embrace a loving, personal mm -hmm. God that Yahweh had always intended himself to be for his people. Mm -hmm. We take that for, I mean, as moderns, we think that God loves us more than anybody. <laughs> and, and we think the other side know, of the spectrum, aren't we? To, to think that there are songs. And again, I'm not disputing the fact of these songs. I'm just saying this song exists that um, if I'd been the only one in the world, Jesus would have died for me. Right. Okay. I mean, I'm not saying that's not true, but I'm just saying that is not how an ancient person right. thought about themselves in right. relationship to God. And, and we've gotten there through the witness of scripture and, and, and lots of other things. But yeah, when they're coming out of Egypt, they had a very different view of mm. the way the gods related to humans. Mm. And this, as I said, Sunday would have jumped out at them. Right as whoa, 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 what's going on here? Yeah, and then, and then the metaphor of father, which becomes, I know, a, a key theme in scripture, right? You're mm -hmm. right, so we're, we're, we're on the other side of that, thanks to the gospel and the impact it's mm -hmm. had on, on Western culture, we, we right. sort of come to that automatically. But yeah, on the other side of it, to have to build that narrative in to show yeah. who God actually just took time yeah. to convince. And, and even in the flood story, which I don't know how many of us read it that way, but to see in mm -hmm. the flood story, paternal love and concern, yeah, we got to get to the other side of the spectrum for that because we we are yeah. we're already incensed that there was a flood. God would never do that. Why did He do that? That's right. They're starting from the other side of the spectrum. Why would God care? Of course He killed. Yeah, him. What is he, yeah. What is he actually. Why does it bother Him? Right. It's a whole another way to look at this. Yeah, it is, and I think I, I, Keith and I were talking about as he's working. He's so good at working ahead on his sermons. <laughs> <laughs> so we're already talking about the details of his sermon on Sunday. But like, how do you how do you balance the reality of the real judgment that came on to uh, you know humanity at that at that moment where there was so much human death and destruction? Mm. How do you balance that with the actual grace that we see there? And that's I'll let him work out. I don't know, but you'll be in Texas when that happens. So. That's right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But but I do think. Um, it has to do, I think, with God's deep love for his intentions and his plan all along. Like, if, if his intention from the very beginning was to dwell with his creation in, in unity and, and fellowship, you can see, you can begin to see, Not we can't understand. Some of this we just have to chalk up to our finiteness and, and we need to be content with that. But at the same time, 
you see a God who does not give up on his plan to bless his people and right. to cause them to flourish in a world that he has made beautiful and perfect for them. That's, that's an amazing aspect of God's love and grace alongside of this, hmm. you know, mind boggling judgment that comes. Is this, a, is this a safe thing to say? And I'm just, as I'm trying to tease this out myself, um, does it make sense to say there's no redemption without kingship? In other words, because mm. I think we would want to say individuals, that's not fair to them. Why couldn't have God? But and you, you made this sort of point that, that God is reestablishing his kingship in some way. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Yeah, yeah. But in one sense, can we say that it, it, and you're at finiteness, we're not going to fully understand this. But yeah, God, yeah. God's not, God wasn't going to come, won't come, can't, I don't know what's the right word, to just individuals. He's got to reestablish his kingship mm. only in that, that redemption is even feasible or possible. Because I think we want to individualize all of this, right? We want to come right. down and say, you know, poor Lou over there could have been saved if he were just addressed directly by God. And instead, right. Right. God seems uninterested. He's just judging yeah. everyone. Right. Are we are we meant to see here that God and, and again I'm I'm taking it back to Pharaoh in the in the plagues that God reestablishes his kingship by by mm -hmm. killing the firstborn of all of is all of Egypt. Yeah. That, that it, it's almost without that kingship, God's there is no redemptive plan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which I, it maybe doesn't make it easier to take in one sense. No, but I think you're on to something because what we're saying is at the root of this. At the root of all of human sin, at least from the beginning, and we see it play out in different ways, is this unwillingness to live underneath God's authority. Right, right. And, and the human impulse towards autonomy and independence is actually what's behind. I mean, this goes back to what we were saying a little bit ago. It's not a, I mean, morality, yes, it is about morality at one level, but way before it's about morality. It's about whose name will be glorified and how the how creator and creature fellowship that does not work without the distinction of creator and creature and the love and the respect that goes back and forth between those two. And so, in a sense, what God is really getting at in these places is like maybe I don't know, I'm throwing this out there, Dan, so let's yeah, we can break it down. But in one sense, if if it's not about morality. And it is about worship, in a sense, mm. then God has to get at that heart of, mm. of worship before he gets before the morality is a concern to God. Mm. So, like, if there is no one who will be righteous, if there is no one who will walk with God, but here is this one individual who will walk with God, mm. that's where this has to go, because that impulse toward autonomy and independence will infect the entire whole. It always does. It, 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 it never stays within its bounds. It, it spreads as we've seen. And like, when you think about God's judgment, I made it, I mentioned this, and I think this could help sort of us wrestle with the, the starkness of God's judgment here is God's judgment is always giving people in a sense, what they demand. Mm. I mean, even if you think about the firstborn of Egypt, there's a weird, a weird sense in which um, Mo, uh, the Pharaoh, part of his, what he was demanding was that Israel's 
children, male children be killed. There's a sense in which that comes right. back on, I mean, and all throughout, that's not even the easiest example, but um, here, if, if people are going to give allegiance to, in, in, the, in the flood narrative, if people are going to give allegiance to these kings, he's going right. to give them, he's right. going to let them have that. And now it's at this point where here comes the judgment, here comes, right. and I, I just think that we have to balance all that. It doesn't give us a full answer. And, and like this points ahead to when Israel is coming to the land and there, there are these, um, she comes in and she wipes out under God's orders, right. entire nations. Um, these are mysterious things to us. And yet at the same time, it's God, in a sense, giving people over to what they have demanded. And yeah, and then uh, there's this, this harsh political, because we live in a democ democratic era where government's supposed to serve people, not people governments. But it seems like historically speaking, that's not the way it worked. And we can say, well, then that's the way the world works. God should never have done that. But I think it could be in there that the idea of kingship is something that humanity developed because of God's image in us. And so we we sort of know down to our five minutes. Mm, yeah. Somehow people are defined by what we worship and who we worship. Yeah. And therefore we're all held guilty by yeah. who we worship. We're right. Guilty by who yeah. we worship. Yeah. I was, I was teaching the new members class on Sunday, uh, our, our first new members class. And, and I talked about how worship is uh, at the center of our life here at Wheatland. But it's not just because uh, worship is what good Christians do. It's because worship is what everyone does. All creatures are worshipers mm. and that our worship shapes us right. to be like the thing that we worship. And, and all of that is, so it's not just a matter of, yeah, we worship on Sunday because that's what great good Christians have done for years and years. No, no, no. We are worshipers. And the, what we have to realize how, is how dangerous our lives and our worlds become when we worship someone other than a loving and just and merciful God, because the even our worship is shaping us into be like the gods that we worship, that sort of thing. I mean, there's a whole lot there, but yeah, um, humans as worshipers sort of innately says that this kingship thing, we know this at a gut level and we all long for that. And of course, that's what will play out in Israel's future, won't it? She'll long for a king like the other nations right exactly human longing Which becomes the real the real crime yeah it Again. is it, yeah it is this it, it is this major point in redemptive history when israel like refuses to live under god's authority in a sense and and ask for a king and there's ways that that's accommodated but um, it is it is a sad sad they bear the weight of that in their in their physical history right right and then and then that, that ties into something else you said which i really loved and i had never thought of this was the way that sin and if, I, if we're putting it back in these frames the way that people become the kings that they honor they, mm. they become in character the, and so that the the rapacious evil of lamech one and taking multiple wives that, that's what then defines this entire generation as they now are judged. But on the other side, our king, and you, and you mm. draw the parallel between how King Yahweh courts Israel mm. and how Jesus courts the church, mm. and our king that we are, we are now seeking to be loyal to actually remakes us not into violent people, but makes us into people of self-sacrifice. 
Yeah. If that's true of our kings, then that becomes yeah. true of us. And that, yeah. that was a really beautiful picture. So powerful. Yeah. yeah, it was really powerful to me when I thought about these Nephilim uh, taking any wives of whom they choose, just forcefully taking them to themselves versus what King Jesus does. And I think what this does is goes back to say that, yeah, kingship is at the heart of it because kingship is exactly what Jesus comes to redeem in, in the world. It, it is his kingship, his humbleness, not great renown, but it says in Ephesians or Philippians 2, that right. he made himself of no reputation. Like here we have the kings, uh, the, the Nephilim, in a sense, making a name for themselves. They're men of renown, mighty men of old. And here Jesus, as he comes to woo his bride, makes himself of no reputation and takes on the form of a servant. And um, yeah, it's just this beautiful way. And like when you talk about, you, you brought that up, the way that God will court Israel. Wow, the patience and the perseverance and the suffering that will go throughout that whole courtship process mm. um, is just a beautiful, a starkly opposite image of what we see here versus the way that God will redeem kingship in the world. Well, then that helps us go, if we go back to the judgment narrative there in, in the flood, then we can say that the loyalty to these Nephilim creates the immoral disaster mm. that conversely, if we, if we seek to obey King Jesus, then moral things become the fruit. And I think this is what Paul's saying in fruit. This is what Jesus is talking about water and wells and all of this. Mm. That then if we, if, like you say, worship shapes us, then, then we must see if, if you, and I think you're right about this. We must see our worship and our loyalty and love for King Jesus as the centerpiece of who we are, out mm. of which flows. And I think this this creates overcomes the whole works business of yeah. Well, how do we do good, do good things to get to salvation? Is missed yeah. the point. You're supposed to, if we seek to love Yahweh and to obey Him, those will be the fruit of that love. We don't start out trying to do good things. We start out trying to love and honor King mm. Yahweh. Yeah, and the fruit is born out. So, I'm like, it gives us an inverse picture of the yeah. Of, of the flood narrative, or at least the wicked generation. Exactly. Yeah. And it, and it takes so much of the question off of those externals, which right. is sort of what the best of what reformed theology has done right. and, and puts it back uh, onto humans as worshipers. And yeah, what a beautiful, a beautiful thing. And then, and then, right. So then, then you say, Jesus says, you know, take up your cross and follow me. And mm. I, I, I always joke with students that when you look at the New Testament or gospels, Jesus is a really bad evangelist, right? He's just awful. Yeah. I never hear the <laughs> road. I never hear, you know, you yeah. want to get out of hell. I never hear any of these things, but he just says, follow me. And then, mm. which would be okay if it weren't for the cross, I right. would have followed him just yeah. fine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if he's going to feed people and heal yeah, people, hey, that's great. I'm down with that. Yeah. Yeah. But then he says, follow me. And then this, this really makes sense of your whole, I think, discussion here about, about mm -hmm. this, this God that loves and this God that's is self-sacrificial that then mm -hmm. we can only in imitation be self-sacrificial. Yeah. And that's what, that's the road he's walked. And now he said, now follow me. Now he walked through the exile and through the Red Sea and through death to the other side as well. So we get to follow him there also. But that's right. But right. it's hard to follow now. Right. You know, exactly. This, the flood coming on. Yeah. And yeah. it is. It's this, it's this beautiful idea 
that, uh, and, and this is what, you know, lots of people have talked about the way up is down, the, the whole upside right, right. downness of self-sacrifice rather than self-preservation um, is what it means to follow Jesus because through his sacrifice, mm -hmm. he has brought about the kingdom that God had always intended to be brought to earth. And, and we're a part of, I mean, think of, I, and that's what, sort of where I was going with that whole bathroom story is that that act of new creation actually gives us a chance to start over mm. in a way that we couldn't see we couldn't see how we could get out of what we've been trapped in mm. in a sense that one amazing act of the death and resurrection of Jesus which is why it says that we are you know which is why we believe and why we um, are so grateful mm to live in the age of the church that we live in and that that act has happened in history and transformed reality. And I know you and I have talked a little bit about that at different times, but just how the resurrection, the, the cross and the resurrection happening in history has transformed human history mm -hmm. and, and made what we've been called to possible. It's transformed what it means to be a human, a, a person in Jesus. Yeah. It's just almost too good to be true. And I know we yeah. often say about the gospel, and I think it's worth parking on that and saying, you, you never get a chance to scrub the slate clean. And it's not that there aren't consequences of our sin, but yeah. in one sense, the slate does actually really, truly get clean. Yeah. And God is once again, managing a new creation, which yeah. Paul seems to say is us, the new man, once we've been baptized in him and raised again yeah we are now like the earth scrubbed clean and new we and and it, and to be frank it's just it's almost too much to handle yeah emotionally to say i just i can't believe that's true i can't believe yeah. but that's faith is to say it is true and then you have this beautiful story historically where it is so that you can actually point to physical reality and say yeah look that's right. what i'm doing yeah you. and and i think it you know at the end of the sermon i just wanted to say to all of us that um we do experience those pains and those doubts and the suffering and all of that, but it none of that ever defines us or keeps us trapped in that cycle of darkness. And, mm. and there is always this grace of the gospel that has to give us hope. Um, yeah, it's just, it's, you're right. It's almost too much. <laughs> too much. And the grace has to come with this. I think that's where the modern gets struggle we just want to be accepted without that but we know mm -hmm. it's not real we know that if you're accepted without real judgment somewhere mm -hmm. it's yeah. just not it's not real it's fictional and and, and in a sense that's becoming part of the our cultural narrative in many ways it, it, not in a gospel centered way but um mm -hmm. in i i wonder how it doesn't lend beauty and credibility to the gospel in that no we're in a time where people are demanding justice for, for real wrongs. And sometimes that goes haywire, obviously, and, and goes in awful directions. But that impulse towards justice is, is the gospel. That is the story of the gospel. Uh, and with that comes all of the grace and forgiveness of Jesus to his people. Well, because I think sometimes, too, some of those demands 
our justice without full judgment. Like mm. Yeah. The full yeah, exactly. cleansing judgment of a holy God. It just we, we want it, but we only want it in part or something. We don't realize because we can honest. only yeah, we can only see in part. We can only know in part. Yeah. And it is this divine the judgment and of, of God that brings all of the judgment and all of the mercy together. Yeah, that's been another thing that I've really been helpful for me is to see how the kingdom of God is what holds those two together mercy and judgment and that's the only place those two get held together Uh, every human attempt at either mercy or justice breaks apart at some point and it's not that you don't try and all of that but you have to be honest about what you're attempting right Right. and i think that's where we get into trouble because we say justice without truly understanding sin and then it's this fairly minor thing no offense to our culture but it's fairly minor to fix racism it's fairly minor quite comparatively Mm -hmm. to fix Political or economic, those are very superficial mm-hmm. things. But as mm-hmm. I say to my students, if you could eliminate racism tomorrow, would you solve the human problem? And then you think about mm-hmm. it for a second and go, well, no. Why? Because the holiness of God compared to that, our the depth of our travesty and sin is just far mm-hmm. deeper than we can imagine. So we can mm-hmm. fix superficial things and think we've done it. Mm-hmm. But I think the flood mm-hmm. story is a reinforcement of the fact that it cannot until it's cleansed all the way down to its root, which is something we cannot do. But what? Jesus could actually take into his own flesh Mm. which I, I think that's another thing we have to be careful of in your in your own thinking here is how do we use the flood story to understand christ rather than you know well, why did he have to die well that's mm-hmm. you know when one person said well you don't understand the death of christ unless you understand the holiness of god's so Narcissus sproul thing yeah so right right if you don't know the the height and depth of the glory and awesomeness of god then to you sin is always a slight thing well it yeah. was a misjudgment it was a mm-hmm. you know economic slight it was a yeah a moral right. disorder no it's mm-hmm. It's down to root and core, mm. which mm. requires the kind of cleansing of the flood or the kind of cleansing of the death of Christ. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's so true. And I think that as we as we sort of think about our own time and our place, if we if if our if our starting point and center and all encompassing uh endeavor is not loyalty to god's kingdom Mm. we're going to replace it with something that is is oppressive and in its own way and um not that it won't be glorious things and beautiful things and there'll be great things that but in the end it's only in the kingdom of god that healing and new creation happens and again I'm, that's not a commentary that says well we don't care about anything else sure, that, sure. that's not the point but because we do we care about racism and we care about uh, economic disparity and all of that but we care about that from the perspective of the kingdom right um and and that's what that's that's the hard work of it all right and you said this towards the end that the, to, to rethink of the flood is not just an end, but as a restoration mm. um, to see the, yeah. the judgment yeah. on Israel as a restoration, to see the judgment on Christ mm-hmm. as a restoration, which again is another yeah. one of these things of inverting yeah. the way we look at things. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting, God's judgment is never an end. It's a beginning. It's a fresh yeah. start. Yeah. Right, right. And the cross, uh, I mean, there it is. It's the first day of new creation is what resurrection is in mm-hmm. a sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. which is a beautiful pattern of God's work, which, mm-hmm. again, just a lot of this, I, I just, I'll go back to the way you set up this whole Genesis sermon series was, it's a, it's a reordering in a way for us of how we see the world, a reordering, yeah. important, a reordering of who we are, 
mm-hmm. which is a very thorough reordering. It's not just uh, we got a few things out of whack. It's how much you got yeah. to go back to the beginning and restructure the whole thing. Yeah. And, and with the example of Israel in front of us that tells us that God is patient with us <laughs> and pers- patient, but also persistent, not patient in that you can just do whatever you want and there'll right, be no, right. but patient and persistent. He will bring us uh, ahead into knowing and growing and, and living in this kingdom. Well, that's good work. And I'm, I'm grateful that you've, you've tackled it. I don't know if, how many of us saw it when you thought you can do Genesis saw this coming in a lot of ways. I guess from your talking, maybe you didn't even see all of that coming either. No, it's, I, it, I am surprised every week how the scriptures continue to unfold to me in, mm-hmm. in just amazing ways. It's been a really rich personal thing um, as well for me. Well, we look forward to Keith unpacking the next two weeks. Yeah. And we'll miss you while you're in Texas, but yes, catch up with me again back and look forward. Exactly. Yep. Thank you. Okay, and thanks, uh, thanks for your work, Dan. Appreciate yep. it again, as always. Friends, thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Cross Reference, a podcast of Wheatland Presbyterian Church. You can learn more about our church and discover additional resources on our website, wheatlandpca.org.